Hi, this is Greg Kilstrom. Welcome to the Agile World Podcast, where we discuss customer experience, employee experience, and transformation in an agile age. The Agile World Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed on this show, you can go to my website at theagile.world and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, The Center of Experience, a blueprint for creating an experience-led organization, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile World podcast, where we talk about branding, customer, and employee experience in an agile age. Today, we're going to talk about next best action and its role in enhancing the customer experience. It's becoming increasingly important to offer customers personalized experiences that provide what they want, when, and how they're expecting it. This applies to all kinds of customers across any industry, from retail to healthcare to financial services or any other. Understanding the customer journey is key to providing this type of tailored experience. Another beneficial approach is next best action. To help me discuss next best action and its role in enhancing the customer experience, I'd like to welcome Jean Belanger. First, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and what inspired you to start Cerebri AI? Great. Thanks, Greg, and, uh, and thank you for having me. Uh, basically, I've been doing startups. Uh, this is my third uh, startup from a blank sheet of paper. Uh, I started in the early 1990s. Uh, my first one was called MetroWorks. We did programming tools, and if you program the Mac or, play, or PlayStation or embedded systems at any time over the last 20, 25 years, you probably heard of Code Warrior. That was our product. Uh, we lost that in 1994. We were Software Product of the Year worldwide on the Mac platform. Uh, we did a dozen different platforms. We won. Uh, it was just a great product. Uh, uh, my engineers, uh, we had 150 engineers when we sold the company working on the product. We, we went public, sold it to Motorola. And, uh, and then uh, I went to work at Motorola in uh, the semiconductor business. And um, I found out again, I didn't like working for large companies. So I, uh, I started another company which did something completely different, which was supply chain uh, for processing e-commerce uh, and retail orders in mega distribution centers, those big warehouses on the interstate. Uh, we did that for four of the top 10 retailers. Uh, Redworks was the company. It was the fastest growing company in 2010 in Austin. Um, so I, uh, that was a data science company, but it didn't use AI. It used uh, operations research, which is a very uh, specialized math that allows you to optimize the constraints in a system. And basically, we did uh, uh, over 70 installations. Uh, we processed over $75 billion of product a year. And we did that for Walmart on down for the top 10 retailers, uh, UPS, Merck, et cetera. So uh, we sold that in 2015 uh, to a German company. And then uh, I was a mentor and a partner in the biggest accelerator in the South called Capital Factory here in Austin. And a couple of guys asked me to uh, help them write the business plan for Cerebri AI. And next thing you know, I'm chairman, a significant investor, and then I'm CEO. And uh, so why I did Cerebri AI was I really, really liked the fact that machine learning is learning 
In other words, the models that you build with AI can learn, whereas in the OR side, it was much more difficult to uh, scale the business. So the learning part of AI is what really attracted me. And uh, so this is my third startup from a blank sheet of paper. Wow. Yeah. Number, number three, that's, uh, that's, that's admirable. <laughs> so yeah. And I actually, um, I'm by no means an engineer, but I, I do definitely remember code warrior. So I think I, I, I fancied myself at least a, a budding engineer back in the day, but, um, no, never made it too far, but definitely, definitely remember that product as well. Yeah, there was, uh, it's, um, uh, we, we made, we made some, the, the idea behind the product, the reason why I've done this so long is I really like building product. But more importantly, I like to solve really complicated problems and make it easy, making it easy to use. And we were the first really important mainstream product that uh, brought together all of the various aggravations in programming. So you could program uh, uh, in multiple languages. You could use multiple compilers. You could use multiple uh, debuggers. You could plug different tools in. And if you look at Visual Studio today, the, the famous Microsoft uh, programming environment, probably the most widely used in the world, many, many, many of those concepts were pioneered by us. And uh, it's one of the reasons why we won a lot of awards. It was just an interesting product. The next time around, we did the same thing in data science. We ended up taking the uh, uh, data from these very mega buildings right down to the sensors on the conveyor. We ended up doing IoT and data science. In fact, I didn't even know I was doing IoT until someone said, hey, that, you're an IoT company. And I had to ask, what's that? I mean, we were just so busy on uh, doing uh, the data science part. And he said, yeah, you go right down to the sensors. This is data no one else captures. And we said, yeah, that's what we do. We capture the best possible digitally recorded data, and we use it to optimize the constraints. In terms of uh, customer experience that we're getting to at Cerebri, is we take the data and we try to make for the best possible insights different objective same idea yeah and that's uh, i think that's a great segue too is uh, you know it, it sounds like even in your last two ex, um experiences uh you've you've been solving complex challenges and i think you know ex experience and you know in this case specifically customer experience uh, on the surface it can seem simple as okay, well, you know, treat customers well, and you know, they'll they'll buy more and buy more often, and and so on and so forth. But what actually goes into making a great customer experience is a very complex endeavor. And so, you know, to start off th this, um, how would you define great customer experience? So, um, so it's an interesting question. So. A vendor, like a like a a, a major, a, we we deal. First of all, let me back up and say we deal with only large scale enterprises. So, uh, and the reason for that is they have the biggest data sets, which are the richest uh, repository of information about customers. So, we naturally gravitate to the uh, to the larger enterprise. So, my comments are based on that. Um, uh, so, customer experience can be viewed from two points of view. So the vendor, i.e. The, the company that's trying to sell you things, has an appreciation for your value. They have lifetime value, and that's how they kind of measure customer experience. But then you have the customer's view. 
So you got to go to base principles to understand exactly what you're trying to accomplish and why. The why part is important because it it's changed. So what's changed? The first thing is our parents have been telling us for two generations, we're special, we're unique. And so now we have to deal with it. People want to be treated as unique people. They don't want to be put into a bucket. They don't want to be put into a segment. They don't want to be spammed. They want to be told what they would like to understand, to hear, to offer, etc. So we take the customer's view and we want to see how engaged the <clears throat> a customer is. And the reason to start there is because if you can't measure things, you can't improve them. And so the, the most obvious customer engagement tool that people use today is NPS, Net Promoter Score, the infamous, would you recommend me to a friend? Very common in digital uh, world in particular because it's easy to do. But in the end, when you do NPS, you, you score all of the uh, various things and you don't really use it all that much in terms of figuring out what you do with customers in terms of that their, their uh, relationship with you in terms of selling. Because ultimately, we want to sell things and we want to sell things people want to buy. So. So that's the base, uh, the base uh, 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 situation we're, uh, we're dealing with. And so the customer now is especially aggravating because they want an omni-channel experience. On my, in my last company, we were dealing with making sure we got the product to the customer, et cetera, and, and an omni-channel uh, world. Now we're dealing with what do you want to buy in that world and how does that work? And, of course, it's pretty simple in theory. The customer wants the same experience, the same offer, the same price, whatever channel they choose to uh, access in order to talk to one of their vendors, be it the web, support call, customer care, store, bank, car dealer, wherever, what the bricks and mortar. So you have an omni-channel experience expectation from the customer and of course that sounds all all nice but it's quite hard to uh, get the same offer and the same thing etc cetera, etc cetera. so so that's that's one of the base uh, uh, predicates to what you're trying to do and of course the most obvious manifestation of all of that is Amazon doing same day service uh, you know same day delivery do we really need all those products on uh, uh, the same day? Apparently we do. And quite popular. Who would have guessed? So um, so the customer experience, it manifests itself in a number of ways. And from a vendor point of view, you want to figure out if your customer is engaged. And then how do you use that in order to be able to understand what to do with the customer? So, um, so the... The obvious question is why do people struggle with it? I think, which is the next part of your question. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't Why don't we explore that? Yeah, I mean, you know, you talked about some of the some of the complexities involved, and and certainly not every company can be Amazon delivering things, you know, same day, next day, uh, things like that. But what are some other reasons that, that companies might be struggling to provide this this great experience? Well. It, just the fact that uh, you're, you pay attention to detail and the many little things that drive people bonkers 
um, it really, uh, it, it, customer experience is just hard work. That's the first uh, thing. It's very hard. And you have to have an attitude that starts with the CEO on down that the customer is important and you want to engage with them. And you've got to pay attention and you've got to build a great product. But it's further exacerbated now by the fact that um, things are moving faster. And uh, the best example I have of that is I had uh, I had lunch with a board member of one of the big biggest banks in 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 the, in the world last week, and he told me uh, he's a he's a he's a friend, and uh, he told me we're spending three billion dollars a year on digital. And you think about that, and you go three billion dollars is a lot of money to spend on digital. That's just an incredible uh, amount of money relative to the fact that that spend ten years ago was probably close to zero. Right. So if you want to operate at scale and deal with the customers, everything else you used to do in, in customer experience, attention to detail, hard work, good attitude, et cetera, et cetera. And now you have to do it faster and you have to do it real fast because the web, the Internet forces that. And so that that leads to a whole different uh, set of problems because no matter how good you were in the past, you have to deliver at an increasing speed. And, and so that leads to a whole set of other problems. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that that kind of brings us to the next, um, uh, the, the next level, so to speak. And, you know, I, I've been looking forward to this uh, because, you uh, my company Cravity has been doing some work along the lines of, of next best action um, as well. And, uh, you know, that's certainly something that your company um, does, you know, has explored um, to, to definitely to, to a, a large degree. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit more. So, you know, first for the, for the audience, can you define, uh, you know, what next best action is and, you know, how is it used to, to solve some of these challenges that we've talked about improving you know how customers purchase products services receive support so on and so forth yeah okay so first things first is every customer is unique and that's a seminal change in business we used to be able to do rules you know if i want to sell to uh, this person and uh, she's female she lives in manhattan on the west side in this zip code income of this Etc. Etc. I can take uh, demographic data, apply a set of rules, and come up with a segment, and say there's three thousand people in this segment. Let's do a campaign, and that's pretty uh, useful. Uh, but how do you how do you become unique in that scenario? You know, you may have two people who have exactly the same de- demographics. One one is a skydiver. And the other uh, uh, is completely risk averse, but they have all the same characteristics except their propensity to be interested in risk or not. So the uniqueness comes to the fore when you have another problem which layers in, which is the omni-channel experience. If I want to be an omni-channel player as a a company, I have to then uh, look at the constraints that I'm dealing with and the biggest constraint that I'm dealing with is I have to go much, much faster. And so the speed of the web, e-commerce, the internet, whatever acronym you prefer, 
that's what the uh, uh, ultimate gating factor is. If I can't go that fast, then there's no point in me talking about Omni because uh, Omni channel requires, that's a key component. Now, if I wanted, so all of a sudden, I can't, all of a sudden that means I can't wait for the customer to uh, decide to come and see me because the customer now has tools they didn't have before and that's the mobile phone in particular with the internet access on a smartphone so now all of a sudden my customer is two or three clicks away or swipes away from a competitor's information so if my if my competitor sees that my customer may be interested in moving forward with a purchase before I do, then they may head me off at the pass, so to speak. So no matter how big you are or small, we all have to become more proactive in anticipating what the uh, customer is going to do next. And I have to know now, I can't wait. I can't think about it. I have to be ready. And so the next best action is basically a new acronym. There's all, if you don't, if it's technical and there's no acronyms, then it can't be very good, right? So you've got to have a new acronym that everybody has to learn. So NBA or next best action is basically the embodiment of what I just said. I'm going to have an offer ready for you when you want it. And I'm going to anticipate when you want it. And I'm going to deliver it via all of my channels in exactly the same context. In other words, if you want to buy a car and I think you're interested in the convertible, uh, you're, whether you go to the web or whether you call our customer care center or whether you go to any of the dealers that sell my brand, you're going to be offered a convertible out of the box, like right away. So, so the anticipation creates the need for an action that's ready to go. So the next best action is probably bad English because you want the very best action, not the next best action, but that's the acronym that everyone has adopted. So, um, so NBA it is. And so that's the reason why the NBA uh, came, came about is to make sure were the vendor, the company that's selling is ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this, I think this then brings us to, you have so many events over so many channels, platforms, devices, you know, customers, so on and so forth. How do you actually understand, you know, make, how do you actually make that next best action decision? And, you know, I think that's where artificial intelligence, machine learning come into play. So, how do you how do you use AI and machine learning, and and where do you see its role in in, in next best action? Yeah, so that's um, and so this is the uh, seminal change in the uh, uh, underlying infrastructure. NBAs have existed for a while, but the un underneath the hood, you open the hood, and there's a lot of change. So you're try <clears throat> if you're going to be uh, proactive, excuse me. If you're going to be proactive, that means you're trying to anticipate uh, customer behavior. And so if you're Freud and have unlimited time and money, then uh, uh, you can do it. But that's impossible when you have millions of customers. So you're going to try and understand uh, uh, behavior. So 
What can you do? So to back up uh, just a second, why is AI successful today when it hasn't been for 50 years? You know, AI has been around forever and it's always been on the top 10 list of things that are going to happen, but never did. Right. The reason why the reason why AI today is so uh, interesting and is making such rapid advances uh, in uh, uh, in uh, in the marketplace is because the uh, AI is now playing to the strength of uh, of the uh, 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 of the computing infrastructure, which means that as follows. In 50 years ago in AI, you were trying to mimic the human brain. You were trying to learn by inference. So, for instance, if you see a, if you see a cat on the street, even two years, three years, and many, many years later, if you see another cat, you can infer it's a cat right away. And it's just the, the human brain is just brilliant at inferring things. Computers aren't very good at that. Computers are much better learning by example. If you show a million pictures of a cat to a computer and you do visual uh, recognition, uh, image recognition, the computer becomes sophisticated at understanding the next picture is a picture of a cat. So how does that, uh, why does that matter? So in, in, in effect, the mathematics have been simplified somewhat to be able to uh, use in machine learning models, core models. And how do they work? Well, in the terms of customer experience, for every customer we have in the system, it, they're making predictions as to what the outcome is that uh, you would like to uh, see. So I use cars as an example because we a we have a car company as a customer, and b it's easy it's easy to talk about. I want to I, I want to predict when my when my customers are going to buy their next car, and you go wow okay that's pretty straightforward. So I'm that's a big signal. It's easy to see. So. The, the model predicts the next car purchase for every customer in the data set. And you start to put the data in. And importantly, you put in the uh, purchase data. So now you're starting to see the actual outcomes. And so the models have simplified things to, I see the outcome. I made a prediction. Did I get it right? And if I got it right, fantastic. All the weights that I have assigned to whatever events I have with regards to that customer, I'm okay. But if I got it wrong, the prediction is wrong, I look at the outcome and go, geez, I got it wrong. And the model looks at the weights it assigns to the events and says, I better change the weights to make sure I, I, I get it right uh, right now. And then that'll help me later when I try to predict again what the person's going to do. But more importantly, what the models do, and this is where uh, it gets to the data side. It looks at all the other customers that are similar to the customer we're talking about. And it says, well, geez, if, if, uh, if Jean bought this and Jean's like Greg, uh, maybe I should change the weights I assigned in Greg's prediction because we're waiting to see what he's going to buy, etc. But when you have millions of customers, you can imagine that all of a sudden you're seeing billions of patterns emerge and the models learn from every time they make a prediction and see an outcome across the entire uh, customer base. So when you're trying to anticipate a customer's behavior, I only have digitally recorded data. 
I, I can't get into the customer's head. I can't psychoanalyze them or et cetera, et cetera. So at the end of the day, that's the best I can do today. And the AI model that compares every customer on an ongoing basis gets a better view of the uniqueness of the customer. And so right away, you're not using any rules to create segments. You're looking at each customer as a unique series of events. So, so that's the first key thing to understand is, is that you're going to have one customer journey for every customer. And that journey is a very fancy way of saying time series. I have the earliest, earliest digitally recorded event with the customer, and I have the most recent. And in between, all of the data that I can get my hands on in the company, in the silos, you know, sales data, marketing data, ERP, and I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the C what's in the CRM, the click streams coming off the web, uh, sentiment analysis. There's any number of things from a marketing point of view and a sales point of view that uh, can be put into the time series. Uh, the customer journey. So one customer journey per customer is a big change that is required in all enterprises today because you can't do artificial intelligence and data science unless you have data. It's called data science for a reason. Data comes first, then the science. The science of AI is then applied to that data. Now, that sounds like an insurmountable problem. It's not. It's just an aggravating problem to gather all of the data from all of the uh, silos. And so you don't have to change the silos. You just have to have a filter to get, uh, to get the data. So, so this, is a, uh, 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 this is step one, two, and three, so to speak, in terms of applying AI. You don't, so the question I always get asked, and I do a lot of customer presentations at uh, enterprise uh, level. And, I, and, and the first thing I always get asked is, well, how much data do you need? Right. Like, like, where, uh, like whose data do you need? Because the, the, it's an important question for two reasons. Number one, how much data do you need? And number two is, oftentimes the person you're speaking to doesn't control all of the data. Because the first thing that's obvious is, if I'm taking sales, marketing, CRM, ERP, support, geez, those are silos. And there are organizations built around these silos. And so now the one customer journey cuts across all of these silos. So a, a very interesting first question that all of the enterprises we talk to are struggling with is, who's going to own the journey? Who's going to own that one customer journey per customer? Because that one customer journey data set is very, very, very valuable for any number of different things. And the value is going to grow over time. Everyone says that data is the new gold. It's the new oil of the 21st century. And that's exactly right. So the first problem in enterprise is who owns it. And that's starting to become, uh, that's starting to get flushed out. And there's a lot of work going on with that. So, um, so that's a, that, that's the basic underlying system. 
And then you get to the things that start to get complicated. So I maybe want to take a break because uh, uh, we can get to that. Or you just want me to continue? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, um, and, and totally agree with your, you know, your sentiments on, you know, who owns that journey. I mean, I, I talk with, you know, with some of our customers quite a bit about this and, you know, it's, it's not so simple as, uh, you know, even a chief experience officer doesn't necessarily own all of the individual pieces that go into the experience. They may have a, 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 they may have ownership, so to speak, of, you know, what does the journey ideally look like and all of that. But, you know, when we start talking about customers and, and um, there's marketing, there's IT, there's all kinds of teams that really need to work together to do that. And so, you know, I think the you, you touched on certainly on, on AI and machine learning. I know when you and I talked a little bit before this, uh, before recording this episode, uh, you touched on uh, reinforcement learning as um, a, a method of making more sense of all of these individual journeys and just all of this, these mountains of data and, and all of that. Could you talk a little bit more about that? And you know, how is reinforcement learning different from other applications of of machine learning or AI? Okay, well that's a, that, that's a that's a fast that's a fascinating question, and I'll tell a little story about that. The, the, but before I get to that. If you have one, I just want to make one other comment on the customer journey. Uh, while I was thinking when you were talking is that um, if you have one journey, how do I deal with multiple KPIs? So if you're a wireless company, for instance, you want to acquire new customers, you want to cross sell uh, different products, you maybe want to upsell uh, customers to a different uh, plan. Um, and so you have you have all of these KPIs that you're dealing with. You want to reduce churn. So how do I have one journey handle all these outcomes that I'm looking for, these KPIs? And I could have dozens of KPIs. So when you have one journey, then that means that if you use it for multiple KPIs, you have to label the data with for various KPIs, because you don't use all of the data for every KPI. It's computationally wasteful because different events in the customer journey impact different KPIs. Churn, yeah. churn may use certain data elements very heavily. And I'll give you a funny example. I was at a bank, uh, a, a bank ran a pilot with us, and so I went to report on the results. And we were there to talk to them about how to upsell and cross-sell their personal loan products to high net worth individuals, which is the salutary goal for sure. And they said, well, you've shown us that you're uh, four times more effective predicting who's going to buy personal loans from the bank. Why is that? And I said, well, because we looked at the credit card data. And mm -hmm. they said, you know, say what? Like, how does that work? And I said, well... When you when you look when you have a customer journey that includes all of your digitally recorded information, and you have the uh, sophisticated tools like we bring to the party, we look at why people uh, uh, why we were successful making these various uh, 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 insights. Um, it turns out that the amount of personal loan transactions doesn't really impact upselling and cross-selling. What really impacts it the most is what people do with their credit cards. Now, as soon as we told them that, they said, well, that's obvious. And, but right. the head of retail turns to his team and says, uh, well, 
we do demographic based rules based. That means we would never catch this. And they said, yes, that's right. So, so labeling uh, and understanding the data and understanding the multiple KPIs that you have, it's very significantly important. And that requires an enormous amount of software to be able to manage that properly because you have a phenomenon that's going to happen. We have one customer that told us they use o- over 200 models in their customer experience uh, area on a monthly basis. Now wow. imagine hooking all that to all the data. We went to another customer, um, uh, one state removed, and we and they're another lar- very these are the largest companies, so these aren't small companies. And uh, I said I said that uh, anecdotally to the uh, two three VPs in the room, and one VP who wasn't involved, uh, especially with the he was more innovation than CX. He said, "Oh my God, that's a lot of a uh, lot of models." And then another VP chimed in and said, "Yeah, we use more than that." And <laughs> and, and 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 what and the innovation VP was incredulous. He said, "Oh my God, that's I never would have guessed." And so you have the phenomenon of the digital of the model factory where you end up with all kinds of these models. So one of the aspects of customer experience for large enterprises is you just can't take a model and throw it at the uh, <clears throat> throw it at the staff and say, "Run the model, good things will happen." Because if you have one journey, how do they access these journeys? So, so this is yeah. coming. This is all becoming very complicated. And of course, the reason the customer wants to be unique and wants to be treated as such, leading to an NBA. So that leads to your question about reinforcement learning. So, you want to have an insight into what the customer is going to do next in terms of buying selling you may even be just trying to increase the engagement level and we have a measurement for that and etc so what insight do you use well the answer is pretty obvious you use the best possible insight that's going to generate the best possible outcome i.e increase the uh, level of revenue or engagement whatever the kpi target you have so what's state of the art today it used to be rules, even just a year or two ago. Now it moved to machine learning, and machine learning is uh, is all the rage, for lack of a better term. And so, what right. we what you ask, what we use? Well, we've gone beyond that, and we use a newer uh, version of AI called reinforcement learning. So, reinforcement learning is uh, is state of the art. Uh, but it's it comes at it from a slightly different uh, fashion. And I, the best way I can describe this is to use an example. So I'm sure all of your listeners uh, of your podcast remember that Google uh, uh, wrote, a, wrote a machine learning uh, uh, model to uh, take on the Go Masters. Uh, and uh, there was a famous uh, match and Google beat the Go Masters. And so... Right. Google's model running on a very, very fast computer uh, uh, beat the Go Masters. It's the first time that uh, uh, an artificial intelligence of whatever genre could actually beat the Go Masters, uh, the human uh, masters. And so that was a pretty big event. So what Google did next, which got less publicity, is they uh, the DeepMind subsidiary in Cambridge, UK, uh, 
which is a subsidiary of uh, of, uh, of Google, uh, uh, went and uh, said, you know what? Why don't we try to use reinforcement learning and see how we stack up against the machine learning model? So reinforcement learning, uh, the, the some of the key technology was developed by three professors at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, uh, uh, Canada, in Alberta. And uh, it, not, to, not surprisingly, Google now has a lab in Edmonton. Uh, I think it's Edmonton. It could have been Calgary, and heaven forbid I'm from Canada. I should remember <laughs> where, where the University of Alberta is. I'm sure I'm going to get nasty emails on that one. But I think it's Edmonton. Uh, in any case, um, uh, they, they, uh, they built an, a reinforcement learning model. And so how does reinforcement learning work in that context? Well, what the, what the reinforcement learning model does is basically as follows. You give the goal rule book to the model and you say, play against yourself. And when you're really, really good at the game, then we're going to take that model, the learning model, the model that's learned from the playing against itself, and we're going to match it up against machine learning model. So in the context of that, they played millions of games against the, itself it learns the rules. It gets good at uh, at uh, at uh, that, and so then they had a bake off the RL model, reinforcement learning versus ML, which is machine learning, and the reinforcement learning model beat the machine learning model a hundred to zero. Wow! Yeah, it wasn't even close. So, <laughs> so uh, uh, reinforcement learning is a uh, very very powerful technology, and so the first question is well. Okay, well, how does that work? Well, now we want to apply it to business. So now you run into some inexorably difficult problems. So number one is obviously you don't want to set a model loose on your uh, customers so it can learn from the customer actions what to do uh, because you're going to lose a lot of customers as it's learning. Yeah. So so you can't do that. So And then, of course, there's another problem, which is um, – when uh, the reinforcement learning model is playing a game, it's playing one-on-one. -on -one. It's you versus the model, et cetera, et cetera. So RL represents in broad terms the gamification of business decision-making, but at a very, very high level. And um, the best way to uh, describe what, uh, uh, what uh, the difference between the two is is that machine learning exploits the techno the data. It looks at the data. As I said, it learns by example, and boom, you get, an, you get an answer. RL, reinforcement learning, explores the data and, uh, and then comes up with an answer. And like just one simple concept that's important, time, the, the concept of time. If, if I make you an offer and it has an ex, it ha, it's today, your reaction to that offer may be quite different than it was than it would have been if I'd made it a month ago or a month from now. So time becomes an integral part of the RL problem set and how you solve it. So um, that's a very high level explanation of the two uh, base technologies. It took us two and a half years to sort out RL. It's very, it's to apply it to a business context 
uh, is uh, uh, was quite difficult. Uh, we filed multiple pat. We filed 16 patents so far. In terms of all of this, from the very beginning of how you measure engagement, how you scale that in dollars and cents, so that you can predict uh, or understand the future spend, all the way through to these RL uh, uh, issues, um, very very difficult to figure out. Incredibly powerful answers. Um, we applied the first application. We applied to one of our customer uh, data sets. Um, we had, uh, if I remember correctly, I think seven or eight years of data, uh, and uh, and we uh, we used the RL model that we've developed to uh, look at the data, and we just all we did no new data, no new offers, nothing like that. We just changed the sequence, the timing of events, and we increased the revenue twenty percent. Wow! And, and, and you sit there and you go, wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, it's very computationally intensive, so uh, the cloud guys love us for that. Um, and uh, uh, but basically, RL is now uh, state of the art, in our view. And the uh, getting back to what I said originally, which insight do you want to use? You want to use the one that gives the best result. And the one thing we can tell you, your listeners, with a hundred percent certainty, is. If you're using a rules-based engine, you are now obsolete, and yeah. uh, it's, you're not obsolete as then you can't you can produce NBAs. Absolutely, NBAs are, uh, are are everywhere, and as you well know, everyone in the world today is a data scientist, and uh, okay. and so when you look at the uh, big picture, uh, one of the issues we have when we talk to large companies is we have to tell them. You know, this is better than what you're currently uh, using. And um, we introduced all of this formally in September. We actually launched uh, the second generation of our product, which is called CVX. And I'm not here to do an infomercial, but just to give you some <laughs> to give you some context. We started showing the RL-based uh, uh, Insight engine to uh, customers in mid-July. Uh, uh, so a few months ago, and in the meantime, we've had seven pilots committed for companies that have over 200 million customers. And uh, we, we just came back from China and talking to some of the most digitally sophisticated companies there and the biggest ones. And uh, they, uh, they, all, uh, they all were really impressed. We even have a, uh, we even have a pilot pending with uh, one of the uh, one of these companies that has over 200 million customers uh, all by themselves. And so um, the, the largest companies that have active data science teams that understand the technology at the base level are all, uh, are all looking at this. And I can tell you with 100% certainty that all of the major technology companies, I mentioned Google, but Microsoft, all the others, they are all really really focused on rl so this is this is going to become uh, common currency and uh, um, insights are going to get a lot better really fast yeah so what are um what are some of the challenges that that companies then face so you know you mentioned um you know data potentially living in different places and you know what are what are some of the other 
maybe talk about what do the teams need to understand and you know some of some of those things that might stand in the way not only of um, you know you being able to do the best work with a customer but really just a, a customer really understanding um, what they need for next best action well the, the, there's there's two problems there's the data and the science so those are two separate issues uh, the data is uh, well one I've been doing data science uh, installations at major enterprises since 2005. And so the rule, the first, rule number one internally is never complain about the data. It's yeah. like <laughs> complaining about the weather. Well, it's not going to stop raining. So you, there's no right. point, there's no point complaining about the weather. So uh, of course you can move uh, to a warmer climate or whatever, but you know, that's, that's pretty radical. So don't complain about the data, just make it happen. And, 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 you need enough data to move the needle. That's what I tell customer enterprises. If you want to move the needle on your revenue and your KPIs and your engagement targets. So we don't know how much that is, but it doesn't need, you don't need all of your data to make that happen. Start by moving the needle and letting the profit from that inform and help finance the rest of the infrastructure you need. So, so the data, the data is uh, is uh, is the first thing. The second thing is the science. Um, you know, I think you know just to give you some uh, give you an idea. The, the I mentioned in the reinforcement learning that time is a critical piece of the puzzle. You know, we looked at how we handle timing in our model, our our our, uh, our engine, and you know the the only research paper we could find was an IEEE paper at a conference in February 2019. So a lot of these problems are new and they're being solved at a blistering pace. So does your data science team have the capability to uh, manage that? And uh, so we see two answers for that. We see uh, uh, everyone is loading up on data science. There's no question about it. Uh, every large enterprise we speak to wants to master data science because it's now become critical. You know, it was, it was always important for many, many years, but now it's mission critical. So it's moved to a different uh, phase. And of course, if you read the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times of London, artificial intelligence is in there every single day. So even the senior executives get, uh, get constantly uh, asked about this. So Everybody wants to be understand data science. So the question is, do you do it all yourself as an enterprise or do you uh, work with vendors? And that's a choice every enterprise is making uh, right now. Uh, the, uh, so that's, uh, that's the second issue. You have to make that decision. And I can't comment on that. Obviously, I, would, uh, I could wax eloquently about how you should use a vendor, but that's an individual enterprise choice. Sure. And we, 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 we see both sides. The third thing is, uh, uh, I said there were two things. There's actually three. The third thing is one of the most important that is very rarely getting surfaced, which is how do you handle all these models? So do you have 20 or 30, whatever number of models discreetly running? And it reminds me, very, very, very uh, succinctly of what happened to accounting. So back in the day, the old mainframe days, 
everybody had their own accounting system. Mm-hmm. It was built. It was built with uh, uh, with different vendors. You used COBOL to stitch it all together, and those infamous legacy systems. That's one of the biggies that never seems to go away. And so, what happened to the accounting system? Well, SAP came around and uh, Oracle Financials and said that just doesn't make sense. You need to have a common data model for all of the accountings, and less mistakes, faster, higher, et cetera, et cetera. And next thing you know, between Oracle and SAP, they have the bulk of the ERP business. Now it has a acronym. We started off by talking about acronyms. <laughs> Another the acronym, uh, Enterprise Resource Planning, and boom, ERP was born. It's all accounting in the end, but Okay, we gotta we we have a more sophisticated way of saying it. So there's going to have to be a reckoning of how to manage all these models. So to give you some context, we we're not a big company per se. We have 45 people in technology out of 55, and you know we're four years old, etc. But of the 45 people in technology, 25 are in data science. Half of those are PhDs but 20 are doing software and the software platform to drive all these models from the one customer journey problem is becoming is fast becoming one of the problems that enterprise has to deal with. So not only do you have to worry about the next best action and how good the engine is that drives it, you got to be able to use it and it has to be delivered at the right place at the right time, whether you're using Adobe to do execution or whether it has to be delivered to your CRM, if you're using Salesforce or Microsoft uh, Dynamics CRM, uh, or your support organization in the call center, which has a separate set of software. So all of these uh, omni-channel problems mean that you need to be pretty uh, sophisticated about how you see this. None of this is going to, all of this is not going to happen in one day because, or a year, because there's a lot of change management involved yeah. and, and other things. But these are some of the issues that, uh, that you have to uh, face if you're, uh, if you're looking at this. And you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but, you know, in talking about goals, measures of success, um, you know, what's, what are the typical measures of success that you work with clients on um, as a, you know, as, as a, as a measure of your engagement? Um, the um, there's, it, it really depends on the KPIs. So I mentioned the bank earlier, they wanted to increase sales of personal loans. You know, it's a, it's a universal bank. It has multiple departments, wealth right. management, et cetera. So they wanted to increase uh, increase personal loan activity. Uh, we have wireless companies that want to decrease churn. We have uh, cable companies that want to look at the unplugging the cable problem. Uh, we have others that want to measure risk in their auto adjudication system and the financial services. Um, so... Um, the, 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 the success that we engender is a function of results. Nobody's going to take this technology leap without generating superior results, whether you're trying to increase engagement scores or whether you're trying to increase revenue when it's all said and done. So uh, uh, the effectiveness of the, uh, the, the measure that seems to resonate the most is you know, we ran marketing campaigns before you ever showed up. 
and you all think you're pretty smart because you're data scientists. Like, how do you convert our campaigns into sales better than us? Yeah, that's ultimately, that's ultimately what matters. And uh, the very first customer uh, we ever looked at was a, was a vehicle. It was an auto company, and we increased their conversion to sales seven x for uh, for new car sales, wow. and five uh, x for used cars. So. Um, when you generate millions of dollars of lift, uh, you get everyone's undivided attention. And, uh, and uh, so, so that's how we're measured. We have to make results better. Engagement, revenue, doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it sounds like the, the numbers speak for themselves. Um, so that's that's really great. Um, so one last question before we wrap up the episode: um, What are some resources that listeners can use to, you know, either better understand the power of next best action or how they might be able to apply it in their role? Um, well, that's a very uh, a very good question. Um, uh, we're happy to if they want to call us, we can have happy to talk to uh, anyone who's interested. It's not a problem. Um, the uh, the, the best way to uh, learn more about this is get out and talk to the people who do this. Um, it's, it's very, very, it's like any kind of new technology uh, uh, engenders an incredible amount of smoke and, uh, and, and confusion. You can't see things. And so the best, uh, the best uh, predicate I think for success is, Get out and talk to people about this. Uh, you know, it's just there are a lot of really smart. This is the first technical discontinuity that I can think of that's being attacked on a global basis. There's as much AI work being done in China as there is in the United States. And, uh, uh, you know, Canada is like absolutely blowing the lights out. I mean, uh, UK, so uh, Central Europe. I mean, there, there's there's work being done like right around the world. So you're not far from people who have a pretty good idea of what it's about. It's kind of difficult to read about it if you have no data science background because it slips into so many acronyms. It's like, like it makes your head spin. So um, I, I much prefer, uh, especially in the first uh, uh, talking to people who know about it and uh, probing how it can work with my business. And fortunately, there's a lot of vendors who are pretty good at this. So um, uh, it's not hard to find a vendor who is willing to talk to you. Uh, just be careful about understanding how the engines work. It's very important. So, um, you know, you can always Google AI. I, I just, I don't think that's, well, first you got to get through all the ads, <laughs> right? Get, get, that's another problem. Uh, but um, I, I think talking to people in academia and in the vendors and in uh, other companies, the bigger the companies today, the more likely they have a dedicated data science team. Great, great. Well, thanks so much for joining the show. And, and for those listening, what's the best way for them to um, learn more about what you're doing and, and keep up with you? Uh, just uh, visit us on the web. We're at cerebriai.com, C-E-R-E-B-R-I-A-I.com, or just email me, Jean, cerebriai.com. You can call me at 
three four three one. I, I sound like an infomercial here. My apologies. Um, uh, that's not the best way to get me is email or SMS. That sounds great. Well, again, I'd like to thank uh, Jean Bollinger, co-founder and CEO Cerebri AI, for joining the show. To learn more about uh, both customer and employee experience, I recommend you go to my website at gregkilstrom.com. Make sure to check out my latest book, The Center of Experience. More information is available on my website or wherever the book is available, like Amazon. Thanks for listening to The Agile World with Greg Kilstrom. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to The Agile World podcast brought to you by Tech Systems. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. You can learn more and get a copy of my latest book, The Center of Experience, from my website at theagile.world or on Amazon or other retailers. Until next week, stay agile.